Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Kyle. We I are, hope you had a great Christmas with your family. Fantastic. Can you not have a good Christmas? That's right. How are the children? They're doing great. And uh, actually, I have a little something later for the show about the kids. We'll okay. see, see if you're up for a challenge. Okay. But before we get into it, the Angelus, would you mind leading us? And do you have an intention for us for today? I do. Why don't we all pray for our families today? Those who are living, those who are deceased members of our families, Christmas is a time for family. And it's good to pray for our parents and grandparents and children and brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We are in the Christmas octave, and on this episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Kevin Rhodes talks about the saints we celebrate during these eight days of Christmas. Then, Bishop and Kyle make a wager about tonight's Cupertino Classic. Afterwards, it's on to questions submitted by listeners. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we are in the third day of the Christmas octave. So, Merry Christmas to everybody listening. Can you explain why the Christmas octave? Well, when there's a big solemnity, the church celebrates not just in one day, but for eight days. Octave means eight. So, we have the octave of Christmas, and we also celebrate the octave of Easter. They're the two greatest feasts of the liturgical year. So that means we celebrate each day like it's Christmas Day. For example, we have the Gloria mm-hmm. at every Mass on these eight days. So if our listeners get a chance to to attend Mass during the octave, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, tradition. Is there any overlap or tie-in of the eight days of Christmas and the 12 days of Christmas? Well, the 12 days of Christmas originated with the celebration going on all the way up to the Feast of the Epiphany, uh-huh. January 6th. And that's a long-standing custom. That's more, I guess you could call it, popular custom. But liturgically speaking, it's an eight-day celebration. Okay. Was Christ actually born in December? Well, you know, 
there's no date given in the Bible uh-huh. that God has revealed to us that so really to be honest no one really knows the real birthday of Jesus there's a lot of things that have been written on this we really don't have time to talk about it but but it was in the fourth century that Christmas began to be celebrated on December 25th it was during the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine the first Christian Roman Emperor and then a Pope Julius the first a few years after that declared that the birth of Jesus would then on be celebrated on the 25th Hmm. of December but you know there are a lot of different theories about why Christmas is celebrated on December 25th and as I said really we don't have time to talk about it but basically at that time of year there were especially in Rome Roman areas there were different winter festivals there's also a tradition that Jesus died on March 25th and that um you know, we celebrate the Annunciation on that day, the day of Jesus's conception. And of course, December 25th is is nine months after March 25th. Uh-huh. So maybe that's one of the reasons, because <laughs> I think the celebration of the Annunciation on March 25th is probably was a day that actually preceded the idea of Christmas being December 25th. There was an earlier tradition of the Annunciation and the conception of Jesus on hmm. March 25th. There's another thing, the connection with the Jewish festival, you know, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights, and that would occur around the same time in December when the Jew, they celebrated when the Jewish people were able to rededicate their temple and rebuild it after that period when they weren't allowed to practice their religion. So there's all these different things. So historians debate this and there's different theories, but the church has said this is the day Uh then that we will celebrate the birth of our Lord. So again, we've done this since the fourth century. It's interesting in those early centuries too, the celebration of on January 6th was really big, what we call now the epiphany. But there was a time where January 6th was was more important than Christmas. Hmm. And it wasn't just because of the the wise men, but they would celebrate Christ's birth as well. And they would celebrate Jesus' baptism that day. So January 6th for a time was, now we've kind of separated all of those out with different feasts. So when does Christmas officially end? Officially, it ends with the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. Okay. And that is celebrated after the Epiphany. And you just have to check your liturgical calendar. Sometimes it's celebrated on the Sunday following the Feast of the Epiphany. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's celebrated the day after the Feast of the Epiphany. So should we keep our decorations up? Well, your Christmas tree may become a fire hazard by then, (laughs) but uh, it's nice if you can keep it watered. I think it's good to keep the Christmas decorations. We have a fake tree. Oh, then you can keep it up. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you see uh, Christmas trees out on the lawn on (laughs) December 26th. Right. Um, It's kind of challenging to follow our liturgical calendar because the the rest of the culture isn't following it. You know, they have Christmas in the in the secular culture is really celebrated all through December or even November, but we really are celebrating Advent, Uh you know, and it's only on 
Christmas Eve that we begin the celebration of Christmas, and then we continue it through the baptism of the Lord, like at Mass. You'll know, well, you'll notice our churches aren't decorated for Christmas until Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're kept up until the Epiphany or the baptism. And we sing Christmas songs, hymns, all the way up till the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. And that's kind of long after you're hearing Christmas carols on the radio. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they probably stop on the 26th. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned that there's all kinds of different feast days during this Christmas celebration. One of them is today's feast, which is that of St. John the Apostle, which you've mentioned before is your confirmation saint. So do you celebrate this day in a special way? Well, I, I just in my own prayer, uh-huh. it's a special day. I, I love St. John the Apostle, an evangelist. Yeah, it's just special. I love these, these, uh, these feasts that take place during the octave of Christmas. I mean, think about it yesterday, the day immediately after the joyful celebration of our Lord's birth, the nativity, we celebrate the church's first martyr, mm-hmm. St. Stephen kind of reminds us that the wood of the manger points to the wood of the cross, Hmm. that Christ was born in order to die, to die for us. And then we have St. Stephen, the deacon, first martyr of the church. At Mass, for example, yesterday, the Feast of St. Stephen, we don't wear the white vestment of Christmas. We wear red, Mm -hmm. the blood of the martyrs. But today... The Feast of St. John the Apostle, when you think about how close John was to our Lord, he was the beloved disciple. He's the one who was there at the foot of the cross, the only one of the twelve who stayed with Jesus until the end. And then, of course, he was the one to whom our Lord entrusted his mother. So I I love St. John and uh, call upon his intercession often. He's represented in Christian art by an eagle. Mm-hmm. You'll often see John with an eagle because an eagle soars. And the idea is that John's gospel soars. It's so profound. His reflections, his deep meditations on the mystery of Christ. Is he the only apostle that didn't die a martyr's death? That's correct. That's the tradition. He's the only one. That's why today we wear white and not red. Hmm. And then why was he referred to as the beloved disciple? Was he chosen for that position or did he do something to earn it? I think it was, uh, I just think of him and I thought of this when I chose the name when I was in seventh grade, that he was Jesus's closest friend. Yeah. I mean, he's the one who was next to him at the last supper and rested his head on Jesus's breast. So I think there was, we, we, we can think about Jesus's inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They were their privileged witnesses, for example, at the Transfiguration. They were Mm -hmm. the three apostles that saw Jesus transfigured in glory. And yet I think there was something about John, who John had a special closeness to the Lord, I think. Was he also the youngest? Tradition has it that he was the youngest, yeah. He's usually, in art, he's usually clean shaven. Uh, You notice that sometimes, whereas the other apostles all have beards. Interesting. Well, since this is kind of your feast day, we have a surprise for you. Another Batman cake. I'm just kidding. Uh, So, you mentioned yesterday we celebrated St. Stephen, the first martyr. What do we know about his life? Well, we can read about him in the Acts of the Apostles. And um, 
he was one of the seven that was chosen when the apostles needed help in their ministry to care for the the widows, the Hellenistic widows who were being neglected. The apostles chose seven men of good repute and laid hands on them, basically an ordination mm-hmm. for this service of charity in the church. And Stephen was one of those seven. And then as you continue reading in the Acts of the Apostles, you read about his his preaching and then his arrest and then his being stoned to death. And of course, Paul, Saul, before his conversion was p- participated in that. Mm-hmm. So one of the beautiful things is when you read of what St. Stephen said, just what Jesus said from the cross as he was dying, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. Mm-hmm. So in a way, Stephen really was a, an icon of Jesus in his suffering and death, the first to shed his blood for the faith. Yeah. Well, tomorrow is the Feast of the Holy Innocents. What do we remember on this feast day? Well, we remember the tragic story of King Herod seeking to kill the newborn king or Messiah and had all the children, boys under the age of two in Bethlehem slaughtered. Of course, this was revealed, Herod's uh, intentions and his wrath was revealed to St. Joseph in a dream. So St. Joseph took Mary and Jesus and escaped Mm -hmm. to Egypt, the flight into Egypt. So when the soldiers came and murdered all these innocent babies, male babies under the age of two, we we call them the holy innocents. I always think on the Feast of the Holy Innocents, we also think of all the innocent children in the world today who are either unjustly treated or abused, and even those who are killed, including the unborn children by abortion. They are the holy innocents of today. Yeah. All right. And then also those that are fleeing for their safety as well. We can see that in the example of St. Joseph of uh, protecting your family. Right. All the refugee families. All right. Well, coming up, we'll have some conversation about the feast day that's on January 1st. Also, the upcoming Cupertino Classic tonight. And questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And we're talking about some of the things that are happening during this octave of Christmas. One of them happens on January 1st. It's a feast day, the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. This year is not a holy day of obligation in the United States. Is that right? That's correct. Um, The bishops, years ago, before I was a bishop, said that when a couple of these holy days fell on a Saturday or a Monday, they were not, not obligatory. They'd still be celebrated, but mm-hmm. not there's. it's not an obligation of Catholics to attend Mass. So this year, January 1st, the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, falls on a Monday. I still encourage people to attend Mass that day, even though it's not obligatory. Yeah. I mean, what better way to begin a new year than Holy Mass and to celebrate this, this beautiful feast of Our Lady? It's really her most ancient title, Mother of God in Greek. Theotokos, which means God-bearer. It was the Council of Ephesus in the year 451 where the bishops of the church gathered and declared Mary to be the mother of God. And that was really important because there were Christological heresies, some denying Christ's humanity, some denying Christ's divinity. Uh 
and especially in response to the heresy of Nestorianism, which kind of held that, that Jesus was two persons, um, hmm. which is heresy. Jesus is one person, one divine person, the Son of God, who has two natures, human and divine. In order to get that uh, teaching across by calling Mary Mother of God, we're really affirming something Christological, the truth about Jesus's identity as a divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So she truly is the mother of God because Jesus is God. So it's a beautiful feast. And as I said, I, I think, um, especially to begin a new year, it's good to, uh, to go to mass and, and to give and to ask Our Lady, the mother of God, for her intercession that during the new year, we will draw closer to her son. Why do we do this on January 1st? Is there a significance with that, or is it just to start off the year? Well, it's the last day, remember, of the octave of Christmas, the eight days of Christmas, and it's the day of the circumcision of Jesus. Okay. Okay, so as a matter of fact, that's the gospel on January 1st when Jesus was circumcised and given the name Jesus. Hmm. So it also reminds us of... Um, Mary's role at that time. I mean, she had just given birth eight days earlier. She and Joseph brought Jesus for circumcision. I can't remember, Kyle, when January 1st began to be observed as the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. I'd have to look that up. Okay. Or if you have time to do a Google search while we're doing this, <laughs> that would be helpful. All right. <laughs> well, also, tonight is the Cupertino Classic. It's going to be at South Bend's St. Joseph High School gym at 6.30 p.m. This is the priests versus the seminarians in, I would say, friendly rivalry, but it also is very highly competitive and also a lot of fun. So, I highly encourage everybody to go there. If it's a road trip or if it's just next door for you, make it to it because it's a fun event. Why do you think something like this is important? Oh, uh, I think it's great. You know, I went last year because uh, mm -hmm. my family came to to here for Christmas. And as I mentioned this year, I'm home with my family, so I'll miss it. But it was a lot of fun last year. Now I have to say our priests have won every year since this began uh, a few years ago. So last year, I was really rooting for the seminarians. Sorry, okay. sorry, priests, but I felt bad. They lost every the year. Underdogs. They, yeah. They're the yeah. underdogs. I always root for the underdogs. And um, they came close. The seminarians last year, I think we went into overtime, I think, uh -huh. or it was, yeah. yeah. So they almost beat the priests. Yeah. And um, I think it's great fun to get our seminarians and priests together. And also so many of our people come out to see it. Yeah, it's very competitive. Mm -hmm. It really is. But I know, you know, I'm kind of have that competitive streak. Yeah. Uh, but we have some good athletes in on both sides. Do you have any idea if there are other dioceses that do something like this? I don't know. I, I mean, we had... When I was a priest, I was on a priest basketball team, and we played various local groups. Like, I remember we played people from the local uh, TV and radio stations, and, okay. and we had a pretty good team. Yeah. Um, but as far as priests versus seminarians, I, I'm not quite sure. Well, we call it the Cupertino Classic. Can you tell us a little bit about St. Joseph Cupertino? Yes, St. Joseph of Cupertino. If you've seen the image that they use in advertising the game, you see this friar up in the air with a basketball going towards the basket. Yeah. Well, 
St. Joseph of Cupertino was a Franciscan mm -hmm. back in the 17th century. He was a priest and a Franciscan, and he reportedly would levitate during his prayer, which means to levitate, you know, you kind of rise up. So he had this gift of of levitation. So I think the seminarians probably chose this purposely. Maybe the priest did. I'm not sure. Yeah. They chose it to call it the Cupertino Classic because of levitating towards the, the basket to make a point. But, you know, St. Joseph of Cupertino is an interesting saint. I mean, he had these supernatural gifts uh, besides levitation, you know, other kinds of ecstasies and miracles. But he was someone who was a... Um, a really clumsy guy and reportedly not very smart uh -huh. so he had a hard time uh, getting into a religious community and getting ordained huh. and he was just very simple isn't it interesting how a lot of these saints i mean you think of father solanus or father solanus casey blessed solanus casey again he, he struggled with academics right. and was a doorkeeper but he became a saint yeah so it's these humble friars like Solanus Casey and Brother Andre of Holy Cross mm -hmm. and St. Jo Joseph of Cupertino, very humble, humble religious, but men of great holiness. Well, one of the things that I really enjoy is seeing the priests out there having a little exercise, having some fun, kind of really get involved with the game and maybe a little uh, playful you know, trash talk and things like that. But just kind of seeing our priests as these are, are regular people. Yes, they are they are called to something extraordinary and they do a great job in our parishes, but just to see them out there having some fun I think is a good, healthy thing. And and hopefully it, it kind of encourages vocations to see like, oh I can be a priest, I can still have fun, I can still, you know, participate in things that I enjoy and serve God in the same time. That's true. That's true. Well, one of the things, uh, you mentioned that you are a competitive person, and uh, I don't know how you feel about taking sides of the seminarians versus the priests. You said that last time you were rooting for the seminarians because they're underdogs, but I thought maybe we could put a little wager on this, and you pick whatever team you want, and I'll take the other team. Okay. And if I lose, I will write and play a song on the ukulele on the show next week. <laughs> uh, but if you lose... I'll have a, a bedtime story for you to read on the show for my children. You got a bet. That sounds yeah. good, Kyle. All right. So what team are you taking? Of course, the seminarians. Okay. <laughs> this might be the year. Now, I'm going to say to our seminarians right now, if they're listening... <laughs> to to uh, let up a little bit on your studies and work on your I mean, work on your basketball. <laughs> All right. All right. So, if the seminarians win, then I will write and play a song on the show on the ukulele. Uh, but if the priests win, then you will read a bedtime story for my kids. You got a deal. Deal. All right. We'll shake on it. Shake. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's official. Okay, seminarians, you better not let me down. All right. Well, remember, this is tonight at 630 at St. Joe's High School in South Bend. If you can't make it, uh, you can listen on Redeemer Radio. We will be broadcasting the game. Uh, it's going to be a lot of great commentary. Uh, the radio is going to be a lot of fun. So check that out. You know what, Kyle, I was thinking of doing? What's that? I thought, you know, Notre Dame men's basketball is a good team. Uh huh. I'm going to go over 
maybe call up and see if I could accept one of those players as a seminarian <laughs> just for a time. Do you think that would be fair? Just one year in the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> one week in the seminary, there that's all. Oh, I see. What <laughs> We've accepted you as a seminarian and then you drop out the next day. Hmm, suspicious. <laughs> all right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- 436-9598 and coming up we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that have been submitted by you the listeners our first question is a follow up to an earlier question that we had going along with a recent question about priests and marriage what is the policy about a priest who has left the priesthood and may want to get married after that. Yes, if a, if a man leaves the act of ministry, he's already made a lifetime promise of celibacy. So he's still bound by the law of celibacy. A priest who leaves the ministry is not allowed to, to marry. Now, he could petition the Pope for a dispensation there's a process for that a canonical process to be asked to be dispensed from the obligations of of the priestly life and of course that includes the obligation of perpetual celibacy whether the pope would grant that or not i mean it's up to the pope there would have to be serious reasons so it would be quite a a long process to petition for that kind of a dispensation you may have heard the popular name for that is is a laicization in other words a return to the lay state now that's a little deceptive because once one is ordained a priest one's always a priest Mm -hmm. it's there's an indelible character on the soul so really truly speaking someone who's ordained a priest cannot become a layperson again okay. but could be we use that term laicization could be dispensed from the obligations including the obligation of celibacy that's not always easy it's up to the pope whether he would grant it whether he for example if he thought that um, perhaps the man should never have been ordained that maybe in the process of his formation there were already issues that should have been addressed and weren't being addressed Mm -hmm. by the seminary. I mean, so you have to take each case individually. Another question that was asked is, do you have any suggestions as to how a married couple can start praying together, having never done it before? It feels so awkward, yet seems so important. I would say, if especially if it's awkward for someone and they've never done it before, just begin very simply. Maybe just sit down, hold hands with your spouse, and say the Our Father together. Mm-hmm. I've recommended to some couples that I prepared for marriage to read the scripture together mm-hmm. and then say a prayer together like the Our Father. You know, you can use the daily gospel. There's many, many suggestions I could give on how to do this. You have to do what you really feel uh, is uh, meaningful to you and comfortable for you. But I think everyone can be can be comfortable with, especially if they're uncomfortable at the beginning, to just pray together the Our Father. Mm-hmm. As time goes on, you know, or even at the beginning, you could do some spontaneous prayer together. Another great thing is to pray the rosary together. 
I highly recommend the family rosary. But even if it's a couple who doesn't have children or before they have children, they can pray the rosary together. Maybe if they're driving somewhere or going out for a walk together and saying the rosary together. So there's all different kind of things. The important thing is not what you do, but that you do it. That you know the how that can evolve and change. But but the idea that you share your relationship with God together. When you say praying the family rosary, you just mean praying the rosary together as a family, or a specific type of rosary called the family rosary no no okay no. the rosary together as a family maybe i'm missing something no here. no no <laughs> right. no the rosary together as a family is sure. such a beautiful beautiful thing yeah charlie craig from saint pius x and granger said we attend the norvis ordo regularly as parishioners of saint pius but also try to attend the latin mass occasionally to expose our children to the beauty and reverence found therein is there a way we can start a fruitful dialogue within our diocese to bring these liturgies closer together so that they can be mutually enriching as pope emeritus benedict called for in his modu proprio and to continue the reform of the reform intended by vatican ii Wow, that's quite a question, Charlie. Thank you. I think maybe I need to clarify some terms for the listeners in case that they're not. That would be helpful yeah. <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, the Novus Ordo, that's the Mass, the ordinary form of the Mass that is uh, celebrated in the, the great majority of our parishes. It's the Mass, sometimes it's called the Mass of Pope Paul VI. In other words, it's the, the Mass that came after the uh, revision of the Rite of the Mass that came after the Second Vatican Council. Okay. Okay, so they call that the New Order, the Novus Ordo. Before that, we know Mass was celebrated in Latin. There were some significant changes in the outward form of the Mass, different rubrics, etc. So a lot of people still remained attached to the older form of the Mass that was there before the Second Vatican Council. Some obvious things, the priest would be facing east, where his back would be to the people. Everyone would be facing the same direction. Mm-hmm. Mass obviously was in Latin. People received Holy Communion kneeling, all of those different things. So so we have this um, reform of the Mass, and this new rite, is the Novus Ordo, is the typical Mass that, that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI recognized that there were still a lot of people who missed the right prior to the Vatican II changes. So he allowed, through a document that he issued called Sumorum Pontificum, he allowed priests to celebrate according to that older form. So we call that the extraordinary form of the mm-hmm. Mass. And in our diocese, we have two parishes where they celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass. Sacred Heart Parish in Fort Wayne, and St. Stanislaus Parish in South Bend. Mm-hmm. There are people like Charlie and his family who who belong to a parish where they celebrate the Novus Ordo Mass, but they like to occasionally go to uh, one of the um, churches where they have the, the Latin Mass, the, the uh, extraordinary form. And I think Pope Benedict's intention was also to satisfy a pastoral need, but also to show the continuity 
between the old form of the Mass and the new form. I mean, it's the same Mass. Mm -hmm. It's the sacrifice of Christ. It's the Eucharistic sacrifice. But externally, there are differences in the way the Mass is celebrated. And I think Pope Benedict thought that having both of the Masses being celebrated around the world, kind of side by side, that they could be mutually enriching. Hmm. There might be some things that we experience in the extraordinary form that um, some would like to see in the Novus Ordo. And there might be some things in the Novus Ordo. For example, the Novus Ordo has a much larger body of, of sacred scripture in the readings than you would have in the older extraordinary form. Really? So, yeah, yeah, a lot more. And um, so... I think Pope Benedict was thinking that maybe by having both forms in the Latin rite being celebrated, that they could be mutually enriching. And I think, for example, music, and you'll see this happening already, where we have such a great tradition of Catholics, of Gregorian chant and of polyphony, that was kind of lost in many places after the Second Vatican Council. But you see it coming back. And of course, that's the kind of music that's sung in the extraordinary form all the time. Mm -hmm. So we see kind of a recapturing or rediscovery of the great tradition of sacred music in the church. So I think that might be part of it. Pope Francis, a couple months ago, he Pope Francis himself doesn't like the, the term reform of the reform. Okay. Charlie mentioned the reform of the reform. And... Um, and I've heard that term used in, a, I think, a proper way, where it's saying, okay, we need to make sure that we, uh, that we don't lose the beauty and the reverence that should be there at Mass. And I'm sure. convinced the Novus Ordo, need, it has to be celebrated with due reverence. It's, mm -hmm. You know, there were abuses after the Second Vatican Council, all kinds of crazy things going on in the liturgies. Thanks be to God, that stopped by and large. Mm -hmm. But I do think we need still more restoration of beauty. And what I would suggest, for example, for exa just as an example, the area of music. Mm -hmm. I honestly think we can do better, generally speaking, in the area of music at our liturgies as Catholics. We have wonderful people serving and you know, singing choirs and cantors and musicians in our parishes, and I'm so grateful to them. And I think all of us need to work at uh, maybe elevating a little bit the quality of our music. I like all different kinds. I, I love Gregorian chant and polyphony. There's good contemporary liturgical music as well. Mm -hmm. But we have to kind of, I think, try to get rid of some of the music that isn't beautiful or where there's sometimes lyrics that aren't really theologically correct. Sure. So we have to be really careful about this. So anyhow, we could have a whole whole radio program on on this issue. Uh -huh. But beauty and reverence in the liturgy, that's so important. People are attracted by beauty, not just in, in music, but in art. I also think, I just thought of this, and I might write about this one of these days, I think we need a recovery of silence in the hmm. liturgy. We live in such a noisy world. I notice among our young people, young adults and teenagers, so many love Eucharistic adoration. You know, when you think about it, they're in such a noisy world, and you know, they're all so many are involved with their iPhones and everything. But to put all that aside and just be in the quiet of prayer in Eucharistic adoration, 
But what bothers me sometimes at some masses is when there's no silence. Yeah. Like it's constant. Yes, music is really important and it should be beautiful. Yes, the prayers are important that we speak out loud. But we need to have some moments of silence during mass. Sometimes I'll uh, take a moment of silence and uh, during mass, like after communion or after the readings, or let's say when you introduce the penitential rite, we're, we're supposed to acknowledge our sinfulness and prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries, then you're supposed to have a moment of silence. Uh-huh. I'll do that, and right away, they're starting <laughs> into the penitential rite, and I'm like, right. it kind of jolts me. I said, no, we need to stop. We need to listen in silence. Another thing is before Mass. There are some parishes where there's a wonderful spirit of silence, and you can come 10 or 15 minutes before Mass in prayer. Mm -hmm. The church needs to be silent. One thing that drives me crazy is when people are talking and chatting all over the place in church before Mass begins. That's not the way to prepare for Mass. That's why we, you know, a lot of our churches, thanks be to God, have gathering areas, you know, narthex, where you can greet your friends and you can carry on a conversation. But once you enter into church, we need silence. We need to respect each other and the need to to be allowed to, to pray to the Lord in silence before Mass. I think that's really important. All right. But as far as Latin Mass versus the Norvis Ordo, uh, is one better than the other? Oh, no. I don't think that would be wrong to say. Yeah. The Mass is, is the Mass. The right. Mass is the great act of worship of God, the sacrifice of Christ that becomes present on our altars. Whether the Mass is celebrated in Latin or in English or any other vernacular language, it's the same Eucharist. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you have submitted. Our next question comes from Jennifer Barton, asked, How do we as Catholics answer those who believe in the population bomb theory and believe that population control and animal rights advocating should be practiced by all nations? Thanks, Jennifer. You know, back in the 60s, there was a, uh, a book, it was a bestseller called The Population Bomb. <laughs> and basically, it was written by Paul Ehrlich, and it was kind of a warning about the pending population explosion and that there would be social chaos and and mass starvation and all that well that didn't happen as a matter of fact we have the opposite problem in uh, some of especially in developed nations there was an article i read not too long ago called the population bomb that fizzled hmm. very interesting the opposite problem is is the case today in the west especially in developed nations especially in europe the birth rate is is too low to replace the present population. So what we have is a uh, increasingly elderly society in places like France and Germany and Italy and Spain and all over Europe and 
to a lesser extent in the United States. So European countries are kind of trying now desperately to raise their fertility rates hmm. and they're having a hard time. If it wasn't for the immigrants coming into Europe, it would really, really be prob problematic. So even governments in Europe now are trying to do things that would encourage the citizens to have more children. I mean, kind of the opposite of, yeah. of what happened, what, what they were thinking back in the uh, 1960s. So we really have a baby shortage in those countries. And you know what's sad also in the more Catholic countries as well as the non-Catholic ones. In order to keep the population level steady, you really need a fertility rate of of about 2.1 mm -hmm. and um, the fertility rate across Europe is is like 1.5 or, or less I think it depends on which country so you can imagine the social problems that result where you don't have enough people working to support Social Security what right. we have called Social Security to support the elderly again one of the things that has averted a, a, a real a crisis is the the phenomenon of immigration into Europe. Now, as Catholics, we definitely believe in, uh, and we're pro-life. We believe in children as a gift. We speak of responsible parenthood, obviously, that it is possible for parents licitly, not through artificial contraception, but through natural family planning to space out their children. This is important, especially in areas where uh, of of less developed countries. But in any case, I would say that it's pretty much this whole idea of, of a population bomb theory has pretty much been debunked by, our, by the experience of the last several decades. Another thing that she brought up was the animal rights issue. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not quite sure I see the connection other than maybe the idea of... Um, that animals are given more importance than children. Maybe yeah. that's the connection, which is obviously uh, very problematic. We teach against any cruelty to animals. Right. Um, that's an important part of our Catholic teaching. They are creatures of God, but, but always inferior to uh, human persons. Mm -hmm. One of our listeners submitted the following question. Is there a difference between one who is a saint and one who is blessed? Yes, a saint is canonized, has the title saint, a blessed is beatified. For example, Solanus Casey mm -hmm. is not yet a saint. He's blessed Solanus Casey. In order for him to be canonized a saint, there needs to be another authenticated miracle. So generally, a saint is someone who is recognized by the whole universal church, a blessed is not celebrated on the universal calendar, but usually in a local area. A saint would, would promote more devotion. And actually, the act of canonization is much more solemn, and it involves an, an exercise of the infallibility of the Pope when he canonizes someone a saint. Does it change the person's actual status in any way, like their, their reality? No. Their re reality in the, uh, towards God, no, right. that's not changed. It's just after the thorough investigation and proofs of miracles giving us the certainty. Okay. Um, yeah. So would a blessed not have that certainty, or are we sure that a blessed is in heaven? 
In declaring someone blessed, the person has been proven to be someone of heroic virtue. Okay. So it's a recognition that, that this person was a faithful disciple of Christ in an extraordinary way. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be natural to, yes, that this person is in heaven. But I think the act of canonization adds an element of greater certainty to that. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you answering these questions and having a good conversation with us today. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. And may the priests win Cupertino Classic. Go Seminarians! <laughs> Join us next Wednesday at noon for an all-new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.